0: Okay, you guys, so put your hands together. Here she is, Eliza Wheeler. Oh, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. Um, I just have a little bit of a cold getting over it, Uh, so I'm a little stuffy, but hopefully you won't catch it. (laughs) Um, I couldn't just, you know, not come. Um. alright, oh thank you so much to Skylight Books for hosting me let's please yeah. <laughs> yay <laughs> um, oh, I'm really excited to be able to share about this book um, and about Tolkien with you all uh, so I hope you're red- ready to settle in and, and nerd out a little bit with me or at least just let me nerd out a little bit um, just in case it gets boring Uh, I have some coloring sheets in the front if anyone wants them feel free to grab some crayons and a coloring sheet or take the coloring sheet home Um, so let's see all right so it was in about June of 2014 um, I got the call out of the blue one day from my agent uh, Jen Rofe. is Jen here? not here um, she said uh, I have a project that came in for you from Macmillan publishers maybe you'll be interested uh, they, they're they looking for you to illustrate it um, and she's like it's a picture book biography of J.R.R. Tolkien and I was like Tolkien, like, like Tolkien, <laughs> like J.R.R. Tolkien, <laughs> uh, and proceeded to freak out. Um, Tolkien has been one of my favorite authors f- uh, for some years, and illustrating a bio um, just felt like a dream come true. Uh, The only hitch was that I was booked on projects for about a year out, and I was just keeping my fingers crossed that they would wait for me, Um, and thank God, they said they would. Uh, So I began the work for this book in summer 2015. Um, It was due at the end of that year, um, but I did miss the deadline by a few months uh, and ended up. Up turning it in in February 2016. Um, so it's been about a year from now since I finished my work for the book um, that it's been in production and marketing and all this stuff. So um, it's pretty exciting. It's been a hard one to wait for because I'm just so excited about uh, sharing Tolkien with people. Um, okay, so I'm going to read the book. Uh didn't bring one, so. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, maybe can I have somebody, Adam, will you hold it for me and do the pages? I don't have it memorized. (laughs) 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 All right. So, John Ronald's Dragons, the story of J.R.R. Tolkien, illustrated by me, and it's written by Carolyn McAllister. John Ronald was a boy who loved horses and trees and strange-sounding words. But most of all, John Ronald loved dragons, dragons that flew through the clouds, dragons that breathed sizzling flames, dragons that tied themselves in knots, dragons that wore shining scales, and dragons that guarded ancient treasure. John Ronald fed sugar cubes to the milkman's horse. He swung from the branches of beech trees with his little brother. His mother read him stories about brave knights who battled dragons. But in Safe Sare Hole, a small town in Britain's Midlands, no actual dragons flew through the clouds, only geese and sometimes a hawk. At school, John Ronald made good friends. The boys held secret parties in the library with tea and biscuits. The librarian scolded them for dropping crumbs on her books. They acted in plays, and they played rugby. They sketched pictures and made jokes. But at school, there were no dragons that breathed sizzling flames, only the headmaster who smoked a pipe. I wish I could do a British accent for this. (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) try. and I will not try. He says don't try. (laughs) On vacations from school, John Ronald visited his cousin Mary. They made up their own language, which meant... There was an old man who said, "'How can I possibly carry my cow? "'For if I were to ask it, to get in my basket, "'it would make such a terrible row.'" The grown-ups shrugged their shoulders. At his cousin's house, there were no dragons tied up in knots, only John Ronald and Mary, who tied themselves in knots, laughing at their private language. Then John Ronald's mother died. He and his brother moved in with their aunt. She didn't like boys, and her house was cold and lonely. At night, John Ronald dreamed of exploring a steamy dragon's den. But in the morning, when he walked into his aunt's kitchen, nothing warmed the room. Only a thin wisp of steam rose from his lumpy oatmeal. On the way from his aunt's house to school, John Ronald stopped at the church. There he helped Father Francis perform the morning mass. He carried a cross up the aisle. He rang the altar bell. Of course, he didn't find any dragons at the church, but he did find stillness, beauty, and peace. After some time, John Ronald moved to a boarding house. There he met a girl with bright eyes and shining black hair. He fell in love and asked her to marry him, and she agreed. For a while, he forgot to look for dragons with shining scales. He only had eyes for Edith as she played scales on her piano. All of a sudden, the whole world went to war. John Ronald had to go, too. He trudged through the mud. He slept in a trench. He heard loud guns. For as far as he could see in any direction, the war had destroyed all green trees. He tried to shut out the noises of war by making up another imaginary language. It didn't work. It was then that he, most, that he most needed dragons. But of course, there were no dragons on the battlefield, only ugly machines belching flames. When John Ronald came home, he got a job teaching at the University of Oxford, He gave lectures, he went to meetings, he tutored students, he graded many, many exams. When he could escape from his work, he ate fish and chips at the pub with his friends. Sometimes they read each other stories they had written, but there were still no dragons guarding treasure, only silent gargoyles guarding the buildings. Then one day, when John Ronald was grading exams, he came to a blank page, He wrote on the page, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. He didn't yet know what a hobbit was. It wasn't a dragon, but he followed it anyway. On school holidays in winter when the fire was lit and the tea kettle was whistling, John Ronald told his children stories about the hobbit, who by the way, he named Bilbo Baggins. He gave Bilbo hairy feet. Bilbo lived in a cozy underground home in the Shire. But most important of all, Bilbo led John Ronald over the Misty Mountains, through the Mirkwood Forest, and across the long lake, the lake, (laughs) to the base of the Lonely mountain. There at last, John Ronald found his dragon. And deep under the lonely mountain, there still lives a dragon that flies through the clouds and breathes sizzling fr- flames. A dragon that wears shining scales and guards ancient treasure. A dragon named Smog. That's the end. <laughs> but thank you Adam Wheeler everybody (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the writer uh, Carolyn McAllister is an English professor at Guilford Guilford College in North Carolina um, and she takes classes abroad every year to study Oxford fantasy writers um, so she seems pretty fitting to be the author of the book Um, the process for me began Um, with taking Carolyn's manuscript, uh, which is essentially a word doc, and pacing it out into 40 pages and breaking it down into into scenes and then figuring out how to build that scene visually. Um, Whoops. You can see my little storyboards here. I just begin with like very small sketches, pacing out the whole book. Um... I had never done a nonfiction picture book before and it involved a lot more research um, than I was used to. Um, mostly if I'm working on a picture book this is where the process starts and then I go right into refining sketches and creating the artwork. But there was this whole length of time of doing research on Tolkien and um, And the main biographies that I used, which are really great, are the Humphrey Carpenter um, biography. And then he has the collected letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, As I read about Tolkien, I realized that I needed more. Oh, that's another another book which is his collected artwork Um, I think a lot of people don't know and I didn't really know before I started that he he was a really great illustrator and he did all of the interior artwork and the original covers for his books those are Adam's maps I'll tell you about them in a second Um, I realized that I needed more visual reference reference and details that were difficult to find partially because a lot of the information in the biographies were information but not visual details um, and so I didn't initially anticipate deciding to travel to England to research do research for the book but I felt like I really had to go there to get a sense of his physical surroundings and um, you know what things were like visually for him at the time um, Let's see. Back to the maps. Okay. um, So Adam helped me make all of these little maps. Uh, He did all the travel arrangements because I was under deadline for another book, Um, and so it was really great to have my travel assistant uh, who did a lot of research on where he lived at different times in his life, where he went to school, um, and all of these different key locations, which were mostly in Birmingham, England, and Oxford, England. Um, we planned for a three week trip there and um, I just figured out a way to work on the current deadline that I had. I worked on the plane and I worked in the evenings for a different book. (laughs) So I was, we were kind of juggling the schedule of like traveling around sightseeing in the day and then um, trying to do sketches in the room at night. Um, Oh, here's that's, me working, uh, waiting for a train, I think we had a train canceled, and then working in the hotel rooms at night. And we got to stay at some really cool historic hotels, um, hotels that Tolkien stayed at uh, throughout his life, and a lot of really great English breakfasts. Um, I'm really happy that we spent the time and money to do this because uh, I'm sure that I wouldn't have created the same artwork that I did without having this experience. Um, There were were also all these great little stories from his life that obviously couldn't make it into the picture book text format, and I wanted to work as many of those details in the visuals that I could. Uh, Most of it will probably go unnoticed, um, but I'm hoping that those details will contribute to the book's feeling of authenticity. Um, So Tolkien was born in South Africa in 1892. Um, His father, Arthur Tolkien, was a banker who came from a family of piano makers in Birmingham. And he moved to South Africa for a position at the Bank of South Africa. His mother, Mabel Mabel Suffield, came from a family who owned a drapery business in Birmingham, England. Um, When they... When Tolkien was first born, Arthur wanted to name him John Rule, and Mabel wanted to name him Ronald. So they settled on John Ronald Rule, Tol- Tolkien. Uh, through his life, he was called different names. Uh, to close friends, to close family, he was Ronald. To friends, he was John Ronald. To his adult friends, he was called Tolkien or Tallers. To the wider Oxford community he was Professor Tolkien, and to everyone else he was known as J.R.R. Tolkien. When John Ronald was three, his mother took him to took him and his younger brother uh, back to England to visit her parents, and while they were there, they received news that Arthur had caught rheumatic fever and died. Um, He he didn't leave any money for them to live on and she had to arrange for a new life in Birmingham. She had relatives close by there and um, she found a cheap cottage in the country, country village of Sarehole just outside of Birmingham. John Ronald loved country life in Sarehole with its rolling hills, streams, and woods. Nearby his home, Hina's brother often played in a large swampy forest called Mosley Bog, and they also played around the village's flour mill called Sarehole Mill. Even though they were poor, their mother still dressed them in suits and pinafores, which made them an oddity with the rough-and-tumble village kids. But he loved the simple-minded, kind, and hard-working people there. And this was the place, more than any other in Tolkien's life, that he felt the most at home. Um, It it became his inspiration for the Shire and the people there, the inspiration for... Um, hobbits uh, there were all these little details in the book that I had to do do a lot of googling about um, because you know you 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 don't think about it just looking at the text, but John Ronald fed sugar cubes to the milkman's horse, so then I had to think, well, what does a milkman and his horse look like in early 1900s Um, so I found myself doing a lot of this kind of research, spending a day googling 1900s English milk cart and horse (laughs) and sometimes coming up with not very much but uh, luckily here I was able to keep it pretty accurate. Um, Over the years the city of Birmingham developed further out and swallowed up the countryside around Sarehole. Adam and I took a city bus to see what was left of the village, and it was simply another neighborhood in Birmingham suburbs. When Tolkien came back to visit the village in his later years, he was heartbroken to find it swallowed up by the city, and Sarehole Mill was abandoned. He paid to have it restored later in his life, and turned it back into a working flour mill. So now it it's a working flour mill, and it houses a little Tolkien museum, uh, which is pretty great. Oops. Um, oh, we were also able to find Tolkien's childhood home on the left, and we were able to walk around Moseley Bog, which is now a, a nature preserve. Um, it was easy to see how this area um, became an inspiration for his different forests of of Middle Earth. Um, In these very early years, he was homeschooled by his mother and And he was roaming freely in the countryside, and this was really when his key passions developed. Um, He became interested in words and their origins and was fascinated by passing train cars, which had Welsh letters. He loved his lessons in Latin and was just as interested in the sounds and shapes of words as he was in their meaning. He also loved his botany lessons, but found that he loved being with plants more than learning about them. He loved trees so much that he talked to them, and there were several trees he became attached to in both childhood and adulthood that he mourned the loss of when he found them cut down. Um, he excelled at drawing and calligraphy, and he also loved legend and folk- folklore, um, his mother read to him from his favorite books were these Andrew Lang fairy books, and um, you can see you can see that I put, I put the green fairy book in his hand on the left, and the red fairy book um, is what she's reading to them. Um, and that was when he first fell in love with dragons and the idea of dragons. Mabel Tolkien had converted to Catholicism to the dismay of her family and she made close friends with a Catholic priest, Fa- Francis Father Morgan. Mabel was a passionate Catholic and John Ronald's love of Catholicism became synonymous with his love for his mother. Father Francis became their, their father figure and, and helped the boys get scholarships to King Edward, Edward's school in Birmingham. Um, when Tolkien was 11, his idyllic life was shattered when his mother died of diabetes, which at the time was an incurable disease. In her will, she made Father Francis the guardian of the boys, and he found an aunt in Birmingham, just a few blocks away from the church in their school, who let them live with her. Suddenly, Tolkien found himself in a smoky industrial neighborhood with a relative who disliked them. The loss of his mother in his country home devastated Tolkien and he found refuge in the church as an altar boy and at the school with his friends. We stayed, we stayed in this neighborhood called um, Edge Bastion which was a few blocks away from the oratory where Tolkien was the altar boy and where his aunt's house was. Um, close to her in the neighborhood were the the two what was known as in the neighborhood the two towers Um, it was thought that these were the inspiration for his the name for his second book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy when we visited we realized that the two towers were just at the end of the street where his aunt lived um so I was inspired to add those into the background of the image on the left Um, and on the right there was a story of John Ronald coming into the kitchen one day to find that his aunt had burned all of his mother's letters and papers and belongings um, not thinking that he would like to keep those Um, so I wanted to add that detail in her and I think I made her look a little (laughs) orc-like Um, For this scene on the right, uh, when I had to draw the sink, I found myself asking whether they would have had indoor plumbing or not, would they have had a sink? And this resulted in a whole day of researching the history of plumbing in Birmingham. Uh, It turns out that at this time, plumbing was in some homes, but not all. So I'm not sure if it's accurate. But I decided that since she lived so close to the waterworks tower, she would have had plumbing um, installed first. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) We'll see if anyone comes out and says, um, actually... Um, right around the corner was the Catholic oratory and the pictures we took there helped me to compose these um, these scenes. Adam snuck some pictures inside. Um, the King Edward school that Tolkien attended um, as a schoolboy no longer exists, so we weren't able to see that building. Um, And I could only find exterior images of the school, so I kind of had to um, piece together different image research of libraries in Birmingham from that time and create this image. Um, John Ronald made three of his closest friends at King Edward's. Who were Geoffrey Smith, Christopher Wiseman, and Robert Gilson. They called themselves the TCBS, standing for the T Club and Barovian Society. Uh, pretty mature for a bunch of 14, 15-year-olds. <laughs> um, they, it's thought that this is his main, this group of boys was his main inspiration for the relationships that created the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, they encouraged each other's creative ambitions and they held secret tea parties in the library at King Edward's School Tol- Tolkien insatiably studied Greek, Latin, French, German, Old English, Welsh, Finnish, and Old Norse. Through these languages he found the poem Beowulf and the tale of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Gawain and the Green Knight, both of which he later became a known scholar. When he later went to Oxford University, he majored in philology, which is the study of words and their origins. This was considered a science by most, but to Tolkien, it was an art, and it was his greatest passion. At the same time, he was spending school holidays in the country with his cousins making up these nonsense languages, but it inspired him to try more seriously at inventing a language of his own. He worked on this language through college, through university, and referred to to it throughout his life as his mad hobby. He discovered Norse sagas, Finnish mythology, and the Finnish language, which he loved. Finnish mythologies made him long for the same kind of ancient folklore for England. The Finnish language inspired the language he'd been inventing in the past years, and he began writing poems in the language. But but he began to feel that a language is meaningless without a story, and without a history, and without a race of people to speak it. And so he had the idea that he might create that mythology to support the language. When John Ronald was 16, Father Francis found a nearby boarding house for John Ronald and Hillary to move to, and that's where he met a 19-year-old pretty girl, Edith, who was also an orphan, and they bonded quickly. The board, this boarding house didn't exist anymore, but I found an old photo of the road, and we took photos of another boarding house that Tolkien lived in on the bottom. Um, so I kind of based the architecture off of those her room her room was below the brothers and she would sneak extra food up to them and they would talk at their windows until the sunrise and their romance bloomed he bought her a watch for her 21st birthday and she bought him a pen for his 18th so I put those little details in there she's got a watch and he's got a pen in his pocket these are the things I spend my time on (laughs) Um, another little detail uh, you might remember that John Ronald's dad came from a family of piano makers so I made the piano that Edith is playing a Tolkien piano Um, and also on the left below Edith you can see the shadows of some bikes And that alludes to a story of the two of them making secret plans to spend the day together in the countryside. Um, They left on their, their bikes at separate times going in different directions and met up for their date. And on the way home they had tea together at a tea shop and were seen by a woman there who knew Father Francis and tattled on them. At this time, Father Francis had high hopes that John Ronald would be able to win one of the um, competitive scholarships given out by Oxford. And it was his only chance to really get into a prestigious school was to test for scholarships because he didn't have any money. Um, and so Father Francis worried that the, this young love would distract John Ronald from his studies. So he moved him and his brother to a different boarding house and made John Ronald promise not to see or write to Edith until he turned 21. Um, He was 18 at the time, so that was three years that he had to wait. She moved away to another city and after a first failed attempt, he won his scholarship to Oxford and he would have to wait three years to contact Edith. Um, so fast forward those three years he's thinking about her and dreaming about her this whole time and um, at midnight on his 21st birthday he writes to Edith um, hoping to renew the relationship and he gets word back from her that she's sorry but she's engaged to somebody else (laughs) Um, She had doubts that Tolkien would wait that long, and she just began to feel put on the shelf, is what she said. Um, So he immediately got on a train and traveled up to Cheltenham, where she lived, um, and they spent the whole day together. And by the end of the day, she she agreed to give up her fiancé and marry him. Um, The separation of of love for the sake of duty is a theme that you can find in both the Silmarillion and in Lord of the Rings. Um, And their relationship inspired two famous couples in his books, mainly uh, Beren and Luthien from the Silmarillion, but also Aragorn and Arwen in the Lord of the Rings. Uh, We got... Got a chance to go out to see their grave in Oxford, and um, underneath her name is 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 the name Luthien, and under his name is um, engraved Baron. And uh, it was neat to see there are all these letters and drawings from kids that people left on the grave. Um. Tolkien Token fit in really well at Oxford, and he continued to work on his secret language between studies. Um, the campus lifestyle was more decadent than what he was used to, uh, and since he was there on a scholarship, um, and he wasn't like he wasn't wealthy like the rest of the students that he went to school with, he he felt a little bit out of place um, and wanting to. Uh, be a little bit more frivolous with his lifestyle, but had to buckle down um, and be studious. Um, we were, let's see, we were able to arrange a private tour of Oxford with a guide who could cater the tour specifically to Tolkien's days there. Um, he showed us, showed us Tolkien's undergraduate college, which was Exeter College, and the bronze bust of Tolkien is in, uh, in the chapel there. We are also able to see the pubs where he wrote and Merton College where he later taught. Tolkien and all of his friends, including the TCBS pals, were enlisted in the war in 1916, and three of them were to sent, sent to the trenches to fight um, at, at the Somme in France. It was an experience that Tolkien hated from beginning to end. He decided to become a signaling officer, learning to speak in Morse code, flagged signaling, and with field telephones. He wanted to be put in the 19th Battalion with his friend G.B. Smith on the left, um, but he was assigned to the 11th Battalion. And on the first day of battle, 20,000 Allied troops were killed, and their TCBS pal Rob Gilson on the right was among one of them which is a really heartbreaking for Tolkien um On one occasion that remained in Tolkien's memory, uh, he ran into G.B. Smith's battalion and they were able to spend a few days talking together before he had to return to the front lines. As they walked together, they came upon a perfect field of red poppies that hadn't yet been destroyed. So the detail of the poppies was something that I wanted to hide in that spread. Um, John, John Ronald made it through some really close calls in action where, hit, where mo- most of his battalion was wiped out. And then he, he, later in the year, he caught trench fever and was shipped back to the hospital in Birmingham. Um, and there he got news that G.B. Smith had been killed from an exploding shell. And by the end of the war, all but one or two of Tolkien's childhood friends were all dead. Tolkien had received a letter from G.B. Smith shortly before this, with en- which ended with, May God bless you, my dear John Ronald, and may you say the things I have tried to say long after I am not here to say them, if such be my lot. These words resounded and were paired with a letter from Tolkien's last remaining friend, Christopher Wiseman, who said, You ought to start the epic. Tolkien felt resolved to begin his mythology, and and he would make it a mythology for England, he decided. So while John Ronald spent months recovering at the University Hospital in Birmingham in 1917, he began writing what eventually became the Silmarillion, Um, When he recovered from the war, he and Edith moved to Leeds and then to Oxford for teaching positions. They had their first child, John, and Tolkien began forming new friendships among the faculty, including writer C.S. Lewis. They started a club called The Inklings, where they discussed literature and religion and critiqued each other's writings. We were able to visit The Eagle and Child down there at the bottom, and um, that was the pub where they met and wrote together. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis had differing tastes and approaches to writing, but they valued each other's opinions even when they often disagreed. C.S. Lewis said of Tolkien, "'He has only two reactions to criticism. "'Either he begins the whole work over again from the beginning, "'or else takes no notice at all.'" (laughs) Tolkien taught Anglo-Saxon, which is also known as Old English, at Oxford University for many years, and he continued working on the Silmarillion on the side. Um, And he and Edith had four children, and he enjoyed telling them various bedtime stories. Um, That day that he was grading papers, uh, which was a task he loathed, he says, I came to a blank leaf, and on it I scrawled, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. I did not, and do not know why, I did nothing about it for a long time. Um, When I drew this scene... I I had to research Tolkien's writing instruments. He used a dip pen and an inkwell, and he also used a Hammond typewriter, so I wanted to get the typewriter accurate. Um, And I also snuck in some of the books that he loved and was influenced by. The story of King Arthur, Sir Gawain in the Green Knight, Beowulf, and behind him is a set of Oxford English dictionaries, which he worked on in 1920. Um, and for the this ending sequence in the book, I had to reread *The Hobbit* uh, for the ending sequence because um, Tolkien used so many descriptive details when he described the um, locations, and all of the dwarves had their own outfit their own colored cloak, um, so I, try, I tried to get those all right. Um, after a few years of, de- of developing The Hobbit as a tale for his kids, he decided to submit it to the publisher, Allen and Unwin, about six years after starting it. Stanley Unwin paid his 10-year-old son a shilling to review it, and he reported... This book, with the help of maps, does not need any illustrations. It is good and should appeal to all children between the ages of five and nine. The Hobbit was published a year later in September of 1937, and by that Christmas, three months later, the printing had sold out. The publisher did decide to include illustrations, um against the advice of the 10-year-old son. Uh, And all those illustrations were done by Tolkien himself. At the time that we visited Oxford, there was an exhibition called Marks of Genius where his original art for the Hobbit jacket was on display. Um, So that was pretty exciting. Tolkien's publisher immediately began clamoring for a sequel about hobbits, hoping for something to be ready in the next couple years. But Tolkien struggled with how to create a new story that connected to Bilbo Baggins, whose ending felt tied up neatly. He came came upon the idea that the sequel should be centered around Bilbo's magic ring, and that's where it began to grow. It took unexpected turns towards something darker and grander and something closer to the Silmarillion. Let's see... This project became 12 years of writing, rewriting, or as Tolkien would say, niggling, before he finished The Lord of the Rings, and it took another four years to get it published in the format of three volumes. The trilogy was finally published in 1954 and 1955, and um, its success paved the way for a new genre called epic high fantasy. Tolkien spent the remainder of his life finishing The Silmarillion. He had his son Christopher assist him with organizing and editing it, and Tolkien passed away in 1973. And Christopher Tolkien had The Silmarillion finally ready for publication four years later in 1977, exactly 40 years after the publication of The Hobbit, and 60 years after Tolkien began the work. Um, the very last piece that I had to complete for the book were, were the end endpapers. Um, and I wanted to do a pattern that echoed a design from that time period. Um, but instead, I decided, instead of just using the same pattern in the front and the back, I decided to be a crazy person and do two different patterns, um, the beginning representing the beginning of his life, um, filled with plants and birds and flowers and then at the end I changed those elements to trees and mountains and stars and dragons. Thank you. That's it. At <laughs> the end. Um, so i have probably way overshared but if anyone has any questions <laughs> Curtis <laughs> Can talk, you know, can talk? Can you about um, how the events of uh, of the World War II, how that maybe found its way into the storyline and the events of the of the book? What, what did well, World War Two or wor- World War One? War War II. Yeah. Really yeah. Yeah, so Tolkien, um, World War II, he was teaching at Oxford at the time and his sons, I think two of his sons served in um, in World War II and he, it's interesting, a lot of people think that his books are allegorical about World War II but he, he was really against this charge. Um, he believed that definitely his experiences in World War One and World War Two affected, um, you know, how, what he was inspired by. And he definitely, definitely was inspired by those experiences. But I think over the years, it sort of became this misunderstanding that the orcs were Germans and all this stuff. And, and he said, you know, this is representative of... Different events throughout history, not this specific one. Anybody else? Thank you. So I know you usually have a very strong palette for all of your books. Uh huh. It's a softer color palette. Yeah, she um, asked about color palettes. A lot of my books before this one are are very bright and saturated and have strong color palettes. Um, But for this one, I looked at a lot of the artwork from that time period. So I was looking at illustrations done in the... um, turn of the century basically golden age illustrations and also illustrators that Tolkien loved he loved Arthur Rackham um, so that was definitely one of the artists that I pulled color palettes directly from and it was interesting like starting out I had the idea that maybe the colors would change drastically through the book but it felt difficult to take a character from the beginning of their life to the end of their life and make it all feel very cohesive you know you're sort of jumping forward and so what I basically did was I chose three basic colors um, I chose, like, a yellow ochre, cerulean blue, and what was the other one? A red color, um, and Payne's gray. That was another one. Um, and I basically mixed those colors primarily and then muddied them down when I got to the war scenes and took out a lot of the color there. Um, but his it kind of goes from very green towards the beginning, to a little more like yellow and sun washed towards the end of his life. Thank you. Did you, you said he was an illustrator himself? Did yeah. Did you hold anything from that and did you feel like there was some pressure to have to rise to the occasion because he himself was an illustrator? I did a little bit. Um, I think one thing that was an issue with this book that we had to be careful of was copyright and you know if I especially for the last uh sequence in the book the Hobbit um sequence I was definitely tempted to like look at his work and wanting to like almost bring that in there but I had to make sure I was keeping it very separate and we had about a month delay where the publisher's lawyer had to like go and look at all of the authorized illustrations ever done which included Tolkien's work but included work done years after and make sure none of my scenes were too close to what had already been done which is difficult because um, his scenes have been highly illustrated and really well illustrated um so yeah thank you anybody else oh so Alex yeah how about trying to stay away from the movies too which seen, uh, sort of, you mean the artwork staying away from the movies yeah. how, how did you try different? um I feel like that happened kind of naturally um Because, I don't know, I think I I had such a clear um, style that I was working with that I wasn't too worried that, you know, the movie imagery would maybe feel too similar. Um, But I I definitely wanted to keep more accurate to the books um, and the description in the books. So I don't think... and, And when did The Hobbit come out, the movies for The Hobbit? I can't remember past few years but I didn't watch them um, while I was doing this um, just to kind of try to keep keep things out of my awareness so it seems like you had an amazing journey as an yes. illustrator and also in England but yeah. at this point how do you feel about fiction versus non-fiction oh um, you mean illustrating fiction yes. versus right. okay. well I love it. I mean, this, like, I loved this so much. Just preparing for this speech, like, I know I, like, way overdid it, but it was, like, I'm so passionate about Tolkien. I think it's so much extra work. It was months and months of extra work. And so if I did it, if I did it again, I really have to be in love with, with the manuscript, you know, in order to do it, because it is a lot of extra work. Um, but I'm, I'm illustrating another nonfiction picture book right now, so I'm still in the land of research and image finding. Uh, not, not in draft form, but in whole other pictures. It was there, a lot that was that you worked on that doesn't make it into the book? Or are you, yeah, like are you That's a, a good question. Are you, pages to do and you only do Yeah. Um, than, like, it's interesting. It didn't change a lot. If I can go back to the beginning to these thumbnail sketches, it didn't change a whole lot from that beginning. And I think because I had the framework of the manuscript and all the events to follow. Um, there were a few scenes, I don't know if you can see it, but um, I had two full spreads for World War I when I pasted out, and I had sort of tried to smush John Ronald arriving at his aunt's house. Let's see if I can point him out. Right here. These are the pages where he arrives at the aunt's house and then these are the two war spreads and um the the editor was worried that it was too much war and that those spreads were sort of smushed together and, and needed some room to, for, for a page turn, which is kind of the big consideration in children's books, is where is that page turn falling? Um, but that, I mean, really, that was like the biggest change. I think a lot more of it was going there seeing these locations looking at photographs and then figuring out like how can I make the scene feel as authentic as possible but also still get a little bit creative with it so does that answer the question okay anybody else uh, <coughs> did the did the author notice a lot of the details that you put in you, oh you, uh, yeah indicated in right (laughs) not totally um yeah he he asked I don't think it ever will it's you know a lot of it's just like for my own nerdy self I think but uh yeah he asked did the author notice a lot of those details that I put in she noticed the poppies from world war one she noticed the Tolkien piano um the bikes from that Story, so it was it was kind of fun to, you know, have her see it. It was totally finished. You know, she didn't see sketches. She didn't see any of that, and um, and so it was fun to get her response. And that's always nerve wracking. Is like waiting for the writer's response once it's all said and done, um, and you're just hoping that they didn't hate it. You know, so um, luckily she's pretty happy. Did the writer get to see any of it before you were, like, publisher? No, no, the writer didn't get to see anything, I think, until they did first proofs. So it's like a digital proof. The, the digital proof was what I used to put these digital um, images in the presentation. It's just sort of first text layout and all that. So some of them are a little different, but... Oh no, she never saw sketches, line drawings, anything like that. So it must be scary from her point of view too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the way you drew his face at uh-huh. different stages in his life. Um, did you I imagine you are you were you know, you informed your drawing about by how what you learned about his his inner life. I mean, in terms of what his experiences was, mm-hmm. were, and, and whether at the end of his life maybe he felt he had accomplished what he needed to accomplish in his life. Right. So I just uh, did. You get a sense first of all of that big question, then then was that an active process during? I don't I'm draw this guy. Uh, yeah, totally. It was, I think, not a lot of picture books. You're drawing someone in most most stages, like aging them. I think that was a challenge. It was like seeing these were the three primary pictures that I had from different stages in his life, so trying to transition him naturally. Um, and also I think, you know, you can see like my idea for the the middle character he was this was his wartime a lot of sp- tragedy and so um showing that reflected on his face a little bit um and yeah as far as like knowing whether he was uh happy with with how his life turned out um i think i don't i don't know that i particularly conveyed any of that on the character but I do know that he um, he, he was pretty thrilled with the outcome of how these books did um, they blew up in America which was exciting to him he wrote back to almost every fan that wrote to him and, um, and some, some people wonder whether he ever wanted to complete the Silmarillion or not he just loved working on it he would, he would refine his language he had several different languages by the end of his lifetime that he had created for this mythology and he would work on maps he would work on this language just sort of... I think he didn't want it to be over. Um, In the biography, it also said at the end of The Lord of the Rings, he had a really hard time ending it. It was just too sad to, like, let these characters go. And if you've read the books, the ending is quite long from the time that they... (laughs) The ring goes in. (laughs) There's a lot that happens after that. (laughs) So... um, yeah, he considered himself to be... He He called himself a niggler. Anybody else? Thank you, guys. So one more. Will this book be uh, released in England as well? Will this book be released in England? I hope so. Yeah. Um, we know that China has bought it, the foreign rights, so that's exciting. But I think that's the only... Uh, only thing we've heard Um, it was pretty cool the Bodleian library is a sort of famous library in Oxford and they archive every copy of every book ever made and so I loved being there thinking like this book's going to be in this library (laughs) it's so cool (laughs) but um, thank you guys so much thanks for coming thanks for listening Uh, yay! (laughs)